In this episode, Steve and I talk a bit about his time in government, a remarkable five-year period, how things got done and what we can learn about political engagement now. We also talk about unfinished business, most notably on auto-enrolment and pension freedom. And we touch on the ski slope of doom and what we can do to maximise retirement outcomes in the years ahead. I hope you enjoy it. Fair point. So uh, you you presumably still live up in South Gloucestershire? I do, yeah, near Thornbury, yeah. And presumably mostly work at home these days? Very much so. So I joined LCP just before lockdown. So I had about a month to meet people in London and then spent most of the last two years sitting in my front room at the at the computer. <laughs> How does that work for your family? <laughs> well, all four of us, so there's two adults, well, four adults basically all working from home, so hammering the broadband. <laughs> we've definitely had to adapt to new ways of living over the last couple of because I left Hargreaves Lansdowne in early in lockdown in 2020 and then for a while I was commuting down to Glastonbury and working for this bike business and then didn't work out that was fine still glad I, I mean it was definitely time for me to get out of HL for me I'm like 20 years is enough but like you I now find myself working at home and yeah every, every, everybody has to adjust <laughs> so. I think the thing that I, I miss is the kind of the stimulation of conversations with industry peers and you know yeah. I, I do a bit more reading which has been good and that, that gives yeah. me ideas yeah but I mean, also, I mean, I know it's it's been what six years now since you left. Yeah, getting on for yeah. But I mean, then you know, right up until 2015, you were you were talking to so many people every day, and you know, such such a contrast. And then you had those few years at Royal London, where again, presumably, you spent a lot of time meeting and talking to people. I did. I mean, Royal London does a lot through financial advisors, and that was certainly a gap in my knowledge when I joined the firm because it's one of those strange divisions in government that financial advice is a treasury thing. And so you, you can be the pensions minister and never really think about financial advice about pensions if you're not careful, because that's mm. somebody else's job. So uh, so I learned a lot about you know financial advice and all of that. And it was nice to work for a firm that was doing auto-enrollment, you know, having legislated for it. I'm yeah. not the biggest provider, but you know, seeing how it worked on the ground was fun. Yeah, I was thinking back. So I just want to touch briefly on that political period, because I think people find it interesting. To, I, I mean, I still find it interesting. I think that with the passage of time, with hindsight, I think that period of the coalition government was a really interesting period of British politics. So I think we first met probably in 2009, I guess might have been 2008, 2009. You were the Liberal Democrat spokesman on pensions. And I was somewhat clumsily trying to lobby around annuities and the deal pension investors got on annuities when they reached retirement and that issue of getting people to shop around. And I suspect that neither of us really anticipated that moment that shortly after you'd find yourself in, in, in government. But what I am interested in, I don't want to dwell too much on the past, but I am interested, that period around May 2010, you know, when the post-election, when for a little while, you know, so who's going to form the government here? Is Brown? Well, no, actually, it looks like it's going to be a, a coalition and then the whole business with Cameron and Clegg in the Rose Garden. And then you were brought in as a DWP minister. You know, I'd just be interested in your reflections on all that, because that, looking back now, seems like a really interesting moment in British politics. Yes, I mean, it, it was a real dilemma in 2010. And, and people forget, I think, the context was the 2008 financial crash had just mm. happened. We then had an inconclusive general election. So there was a lot of pressure to have a stable government. I mean, I think 
the risk of, a, for example, a minority conservative government and, you know, would it fall on, on any given day? You know, there, there was a lot of pressure to try and have a stable government. And although, you know, a lot of Lib Dems have won their seats off conservatives, so we'd spent our time saying, you know, vote for us if you don't want the conservatives, there wasn't really a credible alternative coalition. It was either really, I think, minority conservative government or conservative Lib Dem. I mean, you know, we, we talked to both major parties, but it would have been Labour, Lib Dems, probably nationalists. And, you know, Gordon Brown wasn't in any mood to share power, really. So I think yeah. that was the choice, minority conservative government or coalition. It's a bit weird to stand for parliament and say this is what you do in government and then decline the chance to be in government and do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, you make the point about an unstable government and thinking back to sort of 2017-18 and where Theresa May ended up after she'd lost that, or well, she didn't lose, but but after the 2017 election where she found herself with almost no power, you know, and, and then we ended up in that awful Brexit deadlock for a couple of years. That's what a weak government lead you as just sort of stasis and inaction. Yeah, and, and from the point of view of something like pensions, you know, the fact that I had a five-year stint, I mean, Guy, Guy Opperman's coming up to five years now, and he's managed to survive umpteen changes of government and prime ministers and so on. But, you know, I do think pensions benefits from stability, whoever it is, you know, someone who can be consistent and see stuff through. For sure. I think it's around the 10th of June he will pass the record. <laughs> I don't have it marked in the red circle on my diary, if I'm honest. <laughs> Out of curiosity, I did go away and sort of work out, you know, because given the revolving door that had existed before you got there, for you to have that run of five years was really remarkable at the time. And then we had Ross and Richard Harrington, and, and, and now Guy's had another run like that. And I think it's easy to forget how unusual it was in 2010 that you then had that, that solid five years. Yeah, I mean, I think I had 10 predecessors in the previous 13 years, something like that. So if I'd done the maths, as they say, I could have expected to survive about 15 months or something like that. So, and that's because think, looking back, you know, it turned out five years, but when you start, you don't, yeah, you don't know that you're going to have, so you, you're always acting as if you could be sacked tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to do this briefly, and I don't want this to turn into a, some sort of hagiographic kind of Steve Webb loving, but I just kind of want to touch on this <laughs> because it's really <laughs> But I mean, the, what happened over those five years? You implemented auto-enrolment and you had to make... I mean, I probably won't do you justice either because there was a lot that happened, but you had to make some important policy changes to auto-enrolment on the hoof. You know, there was concern yeah. about small employers, so it was in jeopardy at one point. You brought in the charge cap. There was a state pension triple law. And and then you know you you also completely reformed the state pension, which I thought was an astonishing bit of an achievement to get through through the treasury. And I'd, I'd actually be interested to come back to that and see who, you know your thoughts on, on actually how you got stuff through the treasury. You laid the foundations for collective defined contributions, and then right at the end there was also the pension freedom stuff, which I think was perhaps primarily a treasury thing but again you know you had a hand in that as well. So I mean it was a pretty remarkable five years. So I'd be interested in your reflections on that and on policy formation on and also maybe on you know the stuff that you didn't do that you wish you had but anyway there's a lot there so i'll just let, let you go yeah and i think that's a fair, fair summary of the things i would point to i guess there are some things that you feel would have happened whoever had been in office i think auto enrollment would have happened obviously the momentum started before i came into office i feel that we you know we did an independent review got some of the stuff that might not have worked sorted out so i think it landed better as a result of what we did. And there was this constant burdens on business argument we had to battle within the coalition. So there was a, a faction of the Conservatives, not the entire Conservatives, who were, you know, didn't really want auction enrollment at all, certainly didn't yeah. want it for small firms. So we had to juggle the timetable just, just to give it enough momentum to keep going once we weren't in office anymore. 
I guess the new state pension is the one thing I think might not have happened without me because I cared about it. I wanted to do it. And ministers give clear signals to the civil service about what they care about. Mm. And it was pretty obvious that this was, you know, autonomy was really important, but I also really cared about reforming the state pensions. So, you know, they put the best people on it. They so I'm going to interrupt you briefly. Sorry, yeah. forgive me for interrupting you. Why did you care about reforming the state pension? Well, partly because I've been banging on about it in various forms for years. Partly a lot of fairness issues about women. I mean, you know, the whole married woman's stamp, the home responsibility protection stuff they got wrong. You know, lots of women at the start of the 21st century were getting pensions based on a model designed in the 1940s. And it, you know, so that didn't seem right. It was complicated and it didn't fit auto enrolment. Hmm. You know, when you have a, in today's money, we've got a basic pension of £137.60 and a flat rate pension or a pension credit of 170 odd. So there's £40 gap between the basic pension and, and the pension credit line. Hmm. So if we hadn't done anything, that first £40 of private pension saving would have been more or less wiped out, not perfect, you know. So it was weird putting lots of low-paid workers into pensions and then having a system where, you know, small pensions, frankly, didn't do you any good. So I think it was nice. And, and my, you know, my private office, you met some of the civil servants I worked closely with. They got the message. They realised what was most important to me. So they scheduled the state pension meetings on a Monday afternoon when I was at my freshest and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> the things you don't think about. And I think, ironically, the coalition made it easier to do. I think if I'd been of the governing party, I'd have just been a mid-ranking minister in a medium priority department. You know, why would this agenda get prioritised? Right. But because it was a Lib Dem ask, actually, I think we got more traction. And Because the Conservatives had to throw some meat to, the, to, their, to yeah. their partners. Yeah, I remember um, Polly McKenzie, who was one of Nick Clegg's policy advisors, now heads up Demos, and she said to me, Steve, I wish we'd put your blooming state pension in the manifesto. It would have been an awful lot easier. You know, we could have just said to the Conservatives, you know, it's in our manifesto, we put it in the coalition agreement, we'll do it. Instead, it was an add-on, so we had to trade the new state pension for whatever the Conservatives wanted to do that week kind of thing. But it did give me some traction. And Ian Duncan Smith was very pro, which helped. So, you know, in a way, it fitted universal credit narrative. So universal credit said it pays to work, and new flat rate pension said it pays to save. And, you know, for him, that, that actually worked quite well. So you got your your officials inside the DWP on board, and you got them working on it, and they sort of worked up some ideas. So how hard was it to get to get the Treasury on board as well? One thing I did was got one of George Osborne's special advisors, Rupert Harrison, over to the right. department. And I just okay. talked him through it. I just explained it. So I used to work for the Institute for Fiscal Studies, as I did. And I just said, look, yeah, I just want to tell you what this idea is. I want to tell you why I care about it. And eventually the feedback was, <clears throat> they used to use this phrase, the institutional treasury doesn't object. So they weren't initially fans, but they could see the logic and they couldn't see particular downsides. The one condition was we couldn't spend any money. Right, so it had to be new. So we, yeah. yeah, we could spend running costs money a bit, but the actual cost of the actual pension in no year could be greater. And and that meant year one. And that was always a problem because, of course, some people do better under the new system. Mm. And yet you have to protect the people who would lose. And, and that was a real headache. Sometimes I'd say to David Gork in the Treasury, look, we're saving you billions in year three, year four. And he'd say, no, but you're spending 50 million in year one. You can't do it. So that was a bit frustrating. But but the Treasury, of course, then warmed to it as soon as they realised they got national insurance revenue from abolishing contracting out. Originally, we planned to do it in 2017, and we got a message from the Treasury, could you bring it forward a year? 
which is astonishing. So I had the select committee. I was giving evidence to Frank Field, and they were pressing – oh, it's Anne Begg, I think, by then – who was pressing me on 2017, are you going to let it slip? Universal credit slips. Are you going to let this slip? And I knew perfectly well we're actually going to bring it forward a year, but I couldn't say. <laughs> so the Treasury came around on it and, I mean, it wasn't without some opposition because, as you said, you know, it's not, not everybody won out of it. So how hard was it to push through those changes and to deal with with those criticisms as you were pushing through the legislation? Funny enough, I think the new flat rate state pension was pretty popular. So we did a consultation, about three quarters of the people favoured that over the alternatives. Mm-hmm. We talked to people like Ros Altman, who was very influential, obviously pre-minister, she was, she was on board. Yeah. I remember David Cameron, when we went to talk to him about it, said, what does Ros Altman think? And I was able to say she's in favour, and that reassured him. You know, actually, of course, all the flack was over pension ages. Really, I mean, yes, the new state pension created losers, but nobody understood, frankly, what was going on. I mean, and ironically, the gainers didn't understand they'd gained either. You know, the people who'd been contracted out gained, and they thought they'd lost, and all that sort of stuff. So it was quite complicated. So the real grief was over pension ages rather than on the new state okay. pension. To be honest, okay. and just sticking with the state pension, the triple lock. Right, which is just a, a, an amazing achievement to, to get that in. And again, I'm just really interested. How did you get that one past the Treasury? Well, there's a funny story there. So it was in the Lib Dem manifesto. So we made a lot of Gordon Brown's famous 75p increase in the state pension. So we said, right, it will always be at least 2.5% or earnings or prices. And in the coalition negotiations, we said, well, we'd like this in. And apparently the Conservatives went off to the Treasury and the Treasury said, well, to be honest, inflation is always going to be 2.5% anyway, or earnings is. So this doesn't really cost anything. So so they came back and basically said, yeah, you can have that. It's not going to cost much. Did they not do any kind of serious <laughs> modelling on it then? <laughs> well, you have to remember you were doing an entire programme for government in about five days. Yeah, okay. And so basically the Treasury message was, well, 2.5%, you know, you're always going to have earnings or prices rising by that sort of amount. So realistically, this is quite cheap. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> and it's stuck and it's come under a bit of pressure recently, but mm. it has it has delivered what you wanted it to. It has raised pensioner living standards across the board, right? Yeah, and, and I wouldn't have guessed it would have stuck as long as it did, to be honest. I mean, what amused me is the 2015 election, everybody's manifesto had it in, yeah. you know, and then, then the I Conservatives agree with wobbled. Steve. <laughs> yes, quite. And then the Conservatives wobbled in 2017 and took it out, and then Boris mm. put it back in in 2019. And, you know, so um, I well, think yeah. it's a dilemma whether the job's done, I guess. I mean, you know, how much is the right rate for the state pension? I still think it's probably too low especially given what's happening at the moment with energy prices and stuff. But um, there probably comes an end to the process, but I personally don't think we're quite there yet. But also pensioner wealth is, pensioner wealth, pensioner incomes, it's lumpy, isn't it? So there are some doing really quite well. Of course, yeah. And there there are others who definitely not. And, you know, we can go back to means testing, but that's kind of a bit out of fashion these days. Yeah, and and I think as well as the cohort, you know, the age generation issue Mm -hmm. is, it's tempting to say, you know, golden generation retiring now, you know, free education, own their own homes, all that stuff, and, and a triple op state pension. But of course, the generations coming behind, as we know, mm. you know, may not be in that same position. So a good state pension, particularly for women. I mean, it is astonishing. If you've yeah. worked in the private sector and you're a woman, the state pension is incredibly important in retirement. So I want to come on to kind of more current sort of pension policy issues. Just just before we move away from government, just like any reflections on 
kind of policy formation issues and you know any kind of thoughts for, for I mean here you are now on the outside working in the industry any reflections for the industry on how it how you know what is good effective political engagement look like well I mean you're the doyen of effective political engagement I think Tom so you should probably tell your listeners how to do it I'm the doyen of noisy political engagement which is very different I mean I think two observations really I mean one one on looking back What's astonishing is that there is no objective of what you're trying to achieve. You know, I became the minister and said, well, how would we know if I was succeeding? What does success look like? And everybody in the room looked at each other and they said, well, we've got departmental performance indicators and we want more people on pension credit. I thought, I want less people on pension credit because they got decent pensions, you know. So, so I did this under saving report saying, you know, 12 million people not saving enough mm. and so on. It was my attempt to sort of say, well, let's benchmark where we are and what we're trying to achieve. But astonishing lack of clarity as to what, you know, the ship of state sails serenely on with no obvious destination. But that's a strange thing. I guess from outside in terms of engagement, I would say it's just early, 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 early. You know, people think, oh, I'll wait till they publish their plans and then I'll react. And as you well know, you know, that's very late in Too the late. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so once, once the tra- trajectory is set and the momentum yeah. builds, it's very hard to shift it, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So two big areas of unfinished business that I want to, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on. One is one is auto-enrollment and the other is pension freedoms. So yeah. really interested to hear your thoughts on where we could and where we should go next in terms of auto-enrollment and the front end of the pension system. I think it, I've got a sort of three-step plan, as it were. The first is, as you know, there's a 2017 review. Sensible people looked at the evidence, made incremental suggestions for improvement, I think widely accepted. So enrolling at 18, not 22 and making the 8% apply from the first pound, which which all seems sensible to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are issues, but I think on balance, that's the right thing to do. And yet here we are in early 2022, still not implemented. And that's pretty poor, really. So they ought to get on with that. And that's- Again, apologise for interrupting, but I'm just really interested. Politically, how difficult is that right now, given that whole cost of living narrative that's going on, the concerns about rising inflation and so on? Just any thoughts around that? Well, I I think it's pretty incremental because you probably wouldn't do it overnight anyway. If you were going to move from 8% of a band of earnings that starts at the moment about 6,000 or so, you probably wouldn't set it to zero overnight. You do it in steps. And there's always an argument. You know, there's an argument for not doing auto-enrollment at all because of the recession. You know, it's never the right time. There's a real urgency, I would say. Or you could legislate now and say, look, it will start in 2024 or 25. Put all the process in place, yeah. But, you know, if you wait, I I often talk to our Irish counterparts and they still haven't started auto-enrollment. And partly, without being too unfair, it's because it's never the right time. And it is never the right time, yeah. Absolutely. So I think step one, do the review. Step two, I would level up, to use a phrase, from 5% plus three, so five from the worker, three to the firm, to five plus five. You know, and it's ridiculous employers put less than workers in. I think you can get to 10% without opt-outs because, of course, it's the employer paying more, so the worker doesn't lose anything. So 10% of the whole of earnings is a good start. And then the third thing I do is legislate for auto-escalation, which means when people get a pay rise, the contribution rate rises with an opt-out. But young workers go in at 10 because there's an industry wisdom that says, no, the, you know, the mandatory rate should be 12 or 15 or something. I don't agree with that. I just don't agree. I think you would get opt-outs at that level. So I think we ease people in gradually, five plus five, and then we step them up when they get pay rises quite slowly. And that would job done, pretty much. 
Okay. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Any thoughts around the self-employed? Yeah, well, again, I think, bluntly, DWP haven't been allowed to do what should be done, which is use the tax return process to auto-enroll the self-employed. So what I would do is I'd take the 2 million-ish self-employed who fill in tax returns, I'd work out their tax, I'd add something for their pension, so there's a sort of combined bill, then get in a pension with an opt-out, probably some sort of government bonus, you know, at least tax relief, but maybe just a little more on top to get them started. And that, you know, that's your proper self-employed who've got proper jobs who fill in tax returns. Because as you know, not only is self-employment pension saving low, it's falling, for goodness sake. It's actually going backwards, you know. And so all this happening around with pilots and nudges and all the rest of it, it's all very well in a world where the government won't let you do what you really need to do. Interesting. I've not sensed much appetite for that. I mean, I had a conversation with the DWP quite recently and, you know, it's on their to-do list. We need to find solutions for the self-employed. So it's, it's not like they don't know this. I'm not seeing much momentum and I certainly haven't heard much discussion recently that HMRC would be willing to get on board with using tax returns. But in a world of making tax digital, it's an awful lot easier than it would once have been. You know, you're not talking paper returns anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, interesting. And then continuing the theme of unfinished business, pension freedoms. Yes. <laughs> My priority unfinished business of pension freedoms is post-retirement and managing a pot. I did a paper with my colleague Phil Boyle at LCP recently called Is There a Right Time to Buy an Annuity? Mm-hmm. And basically what we said is, you know, annuities were never evil. They may have been poor value partly because people didn't shop around, partly because they weren't individually underwritten and so on and so on, and partly because people were just buying them too long, too early. Yeah. But actually, as you get older, the uncertainty about how long you'll live increases. You know, the, the, there's a chance you'll live the average, but there's a chance you'll live double the average, and that gets bigger as you get older. Yeah. So an annuity at some point or a partial annuity or part annuity when you retire and more annuity later, I think should be part of the mix. I think the select committee said that recently. Yet we haven't got products, really, that, you know, so for example, a drawdown that morphs into an annuity without a further choice, unless you opt out, something like that. And the attraction to me of a product like that is you engage with someone at, let's say, 65-ish, when hopefully, you know, they're with it, they're engaged, they're interested, they're about to retire, they're planning their finances. You don't then need them to overcome inertia at 78 or something to decide to buy an annuity because they've thought about it ahead of time. So I just think if annuitization for some is right in later retirement, how on earth are we going to get people to actually engage and to do it? Do we want 83-year-olds making decisions about annuities? I don't think we do. I find that really interesting because I think across the industry, there would be a lot of support for the argument that as you get into your mid-late 70s, a market-leading, personally underwritten annuity starts to look like really pretty good value for money. Yeah, uh, and I, I, you know, I don't think many would dispute that. So but it's not going to happen if, if we if we leave it to the individual. So that's the bit you're focusing on is is the actual decision-making process. And your argument is: look, just pre-book it. Just accept that yeah. at age six, sixty-five, when you go into drawdown, or sixty when you go into drawdown, or even fifty-five when you go into drawdown, mm-hmm. you just kind of plan ahead and say there's going to come a point. So my my only concern about that, and I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you here, but you know people's circumstances change and you know their health changes and their yeah. sort of you know their relationships change and so it's very hard to say even at 65 that when i am 75 when i'm 78 that will be the moment and i'm happy to plan now but that's the moment when i'll flip some money into an annuity 
Sure. And I think there's a, a couple of ways you'd address that. I mean, so what we do in the paper is we try lots of different assumptions. You know, what if you're really risk averse? What if you're desperate to leave money to the kids? And, you know, we get a different age, a different optimum age. So in my simple thinking, when you buy the product, you answer half a dozen questions. And that gives a steer as to the right sort of age for you. It's not perfect, but it's there or thereabouts. And then perhaps each five years during the life of the product, that just gets refreshed. And you've got that on store and you can change it if you want. And then right at the point of annuitization, you do a final sense check. You know, so it's, it's not a one-way rail track that has to enter a certain destination. But for most people, most of the time, it's probably better than they would otherwise get. So what you're talking about, I think, is a kind of a strengthening of that interaction and relationship between the broadly the product provider, for want of a better term, the pension product provider and their customer. And I guess in an ideal world, everybody would have a really good value for money financial advisor who sits on their shoulder and just kind of delivers solutions for them at the point of need. But we all know that ain't going to happen. And so we've got things yeah. like MAPS and the Midlife MOT. We've got PensionWise intervention. And, and these, these kind of help, but they don't entirely fix it. So, so where you've come back to is it has to be that relationship with the product provider. And it's, this should be a communication, what, an obligation? Or just is this just good practice at the product provider? It's talking yeah, to the customer. I think that the default drawdown product should head to an annuity. So if you're a master trust, the conversation you have with your members who are thinking about drawdown is our core drawdown product ends up, you know, wholly or in part as an annuity. You can have something different if you want. But for these reasons, we think this is likely to be the best thing. So people who are not particularly engaged, who just want to get on with it, end up in this kind of product. It's really interesting. I can see some drawdown providers would be a little sad to see those pots of money disappearing off to an insurance company well, in the form of a yes annuity no. contract. Yes and no. I mean, for two reasons. One is sometimes they're the same people. So, so yeah. sometimes they also sell annuities, etc. Yeah. But also I've spoken to insurers who I won't name who said, we don't want 83-year-olds with small drawdown pots. No, true. That's the last yeah. thing we want. You know, you can't service it's, them, you can't give, you know, etc. It's a risk, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So I guess tying into this, one of the things that I've been interested in over the years is, is that transition from auto-enrollment passivity, yeah. you know, freedom from decision-making through to, look, I'm in my late 50s, I am absolutely going to have to make some decisions here. And I, I sense you've always been in the place of, yeah, but let's take as many of those decisions off the table as we can. Let's make it as easy as possible to put the, the bumpers in the lanes to, to yeah. steer you into particular sort of homogenous solutions that frankly work for most people. So you've talked a bit about there about, again, same kind of thing. We'll just default you into an annuity contract further down the line. Do you think it's possible to make that work from the 18-year-old getting auto-enrolled and getting their 10% contribution all the way through to the 78-year-old or whatever getting their annuity conversion from their drawdown plan without too much engagement from them? Yes, I, I do. And indeed, I think it has to because we're the best one in the world, you know, mass take-up of a lot of Certainly advice and, to some extent, tailored guidance is always going to be a challenge, I think. And you and I both know it's contributions, contributions, contributions. Yeah. We faff around about all this other stuff, but if people have got small pots that are blown, as it were, yeah. and if they've got decent pots, then even 
marginally bad choices and they're still kind of all right-ish. So I think all the rubbish like statement seasons and all this sort of stuff, which is such a distraction. <gasps> Don't let go hear you say that. Well, I, you know, you tell him. I mean, and, and, and he wants to legislate. You know, you, legislative time is a scarce resource. You only get so many clauses in a given year and to waste them on a sort of gimmick like this is just when you when they've not implemented the 2017 autumn enrollment review is criminal yeah. in my view okay all right i do i've got one one of the nudge incidentally just to mention on, decoupling on, conscious decoupling <laughs> so this is tax free cash right, okay, um okay. yeah which came so, out the committee the committee uh paper didn't yeah it? which we, we put in written evidence arguing this so yeah. so the story is as you know you take i think the most recent fca data i think it was a six-month period about three hundred thousand people accessed a pot for the first mm-hmm. time and half of them cashed out in full more than mm-hmm. half but let's say half even higher percentage of the small pots and what do we know from the research is they're fixated on tax-free cash you know you're mm-hmm. over 55 you want your ta- who wouldn't like tax-free cash? You know what? What's not to like? And of course, what they do is they take a hundred percent to get twenty-five percent. You know, mostly they're not going to spend the rest of it. Some do, but the FCA did some research early on, and a lot of the rest of the money ends up in cash accounts, current accounts, cash ices, etc. So you go this from crazy. You take taking out yeah. a tax privileged account, paid some tax on it, and then stuck it in a bank account. Whereas if, even yeah. if you do earn any interest, it's going to get taxed. Well, I mean, which doesn't earn any interest. There are ISAs paying zero point oh one percent. You know, with high street banks kind of thing. So yeah. now. Clever people say, well, you don't, it's not a problem because people can take 25% and leave the rest in drawdown, but Mm. they don't. The single most common thing is they take 100%. So surely we should say to people, look, fine, have your tax free cash and literally leave the rest behind where it is with the charges it's at. And maybe you don't then touch that for five, seven, 10 years and you get all that investment growth, all that low charge. Because even if you go into drawdown, it's probably much higher charge than you've just been oh, paying. But I can hear, I can hear pension providers' brains exploding up and down the land <laughs> with the, at the prospect of all the additional data tracking and client records. And does this pot had its tax-free cash taken? And, yeah. and, and there's this one not? And then he transfers? And I know. But set that against. I mean, yes, there's hassle. Some of these companies have even got computers these days, I'm told. But, but you know, <laughs> compare that with the loss of hundreds of thousands of people trashing their pension savings and bunging them in an ISA paying 0.01% for however long. I mean, could, huge. Could, yeah, no, okay. Could you not just create a default where, yes, Steve, you want your 25% tax-free cash, so we will do this in a way that just automatically parks the remaining 75% in a drawdown arrangement and just shifts the emphasis to, obviously, we're just going to give you a 25% now because the rest is taxable and you wouldn't want to take that, would you? You know, could yeah. that not achieve the same aim? Well, ish. But again, what's the drawdown product? If it's individually sourced, it's almost spe- certainly more expensive than the, the workplace pension, for example. Uh, yeah, a lot of these small pots are auto-enrolment pots, I imagine, mm. or certainly will be in future. So, you know, yes, there are ways around it. But I think actually leaving the money where it was is easier than anything as far as the punters yeah. are concerned. And actually, for those 8 million people, I think, now in Nest, you know, they simply don't have the option to do that, do they? <laughs> or is it nine or is it ten? I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous. I was told when I started that between one and four million people would end up in Nest. Okay. <laughs> and I said, this is ridiculous. This is a huge margin of uncertainty. Can't you give me a better number than this? I didn't realise it would end up being double the upper end of the range. Well, we were also told that 30% of people would opt out, weren't we? We were. So, we were. So there's that too. <laughs> That's because um, people told us that. <laughs> what do they know, eh? <laughs> so, I mean, maybe this bridges across to the retirement income stuff. Do you think collected fine contributions going to take off? I mean, you laid the groundwork for this 
back when you were a pensions minister. We're still talking about it now. We're still still laying the groundwork for it. Is it going to happen? I'm sure it'll happen. I mean, you know, the Royal Mail are committed. The secondary legislation has been published. So I think I think we will get there. And there is, I mean, people were always very sceptical. They always said to me, no, you know, nobody will be interested. People in individual DC won't want to go collective. People in DB will want to just get everything off the table kind of thing. But I always thought that the pendulum would swing back Massive risk transfer we've gone through yeah. from, you know, the company bears everything to the individual bears everything. I always felt that pendulum would have to swing back. I thought it would take a lot longer, ironically. That's why the 2015 Pension Schemes Act, you know, was on a slow burn. It was going to take a while because I didn't think it would be the appetite. So I was pleasantly surprised, actually, when the Royal Mail came forward, coming out of DB, of course. Yeah. But once they've done all the hard work, once they've set it up, ironed it out, and, and it seems to work for a few years, we've got clients at LTP who are interested in CDC. So that could be post-retirement as well. Yeah, um, yeah and I think there's an interesting argument yeah. around using that collectivised scheme for, again, for managing that risk in retirement. Yeah. I guess there's a, a huge communications challenge, isn't there, though? Because so it's not an annuity. So the income isn't guaranteed. It'll last as long as you live, but the income isn't guaranteed. It could go up or down. Oh, well, so what is it? You know, that's the challenge, um, I think. And I, I mean, again, I'd be interested in your take on this. One aspect of the pension system, again, we're into Treasury rather than DWP policy here, but then you're not DWP anymore, so that's okay. <laughs> so is the death benefits. Is just this yeah. kind of, we'll give you all this tax-free tax relief on the money going in, we'll give you this tax-free growth, and then we'll just leave the stable door open so you're actually incentivized if you're wealthy, to draw on your pension fund last, because that's the most efficient way to pass money on to the next generations. To me, you know, that, that came quite late on in the pension freedoms policy development, and it's always, just always looked bonkers. Yeah, I I mean, your thoughts around that. I'll tell you what happened was that George Osborne wanted things to say to the Conservative Party conference. And in 2013, I think it was, he announced a million pound tax-free house. So, you know, a couple inheritance tax threshold, you can pass on a million pound tax-free standing ovation at the Tory party conference. 2014, so he's announced pension freedoms in March. 2014, last Tory conference before the general election. How do I build on this? How do I reinforce the message with the party of inheritance? I know you can pass on your pension tax-free. That's what happened, basically. It was just a kind of positioning thing. You know, Labour, evil, Labour will tax, death taxes, all that sort of stuff. You know what they'll do. You know what they're like. We believe in freedom and it's your money. You should, your kids should get it. Yeah. Well, to be fair, it worked. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. <laughs> so there's that. But I mean, from, from a policy point of view, it's, it's just looked horrible. I'd I be think surprised if it survives. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit like the triple lock. Once you've given it, it's quite hard to take it away. And you, I mean, you, we've talked about this before. Once you've once you've made a commitment to any constituency to then take that something away from them is really quite difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. So there's that. A couple of weeks ago, you really kind of drew my attention to a paper, which I think has just got one of the best titles I've ever seen, The Ski Slope of Doom, which talked about the impending retirement income situation. Paraphrase an entire paper for us. Like, how bad is it going to get, Steve, over the next 20 years? <laughs> well, I think we've known, you know, we all know defined benefit final salary type pensions have been closing for years. And at some point, that's got to have an impact on people who are retiring. You know, they've built up big rights, but with every passing year, People have had less service in DB, et cetera. So we had a, first of all, we had a look at have we reached peak DB uh, in terms of people retiring this year, next year, the year after. And we think we're there or thereabouts. In other words, the generation retiring today are probably going to have about as much private sector DB as anyone before or since. But it goes downhill. And the ski slope of doom essentially is that private sector DB 
at retirement income just falling off a cliff to mix my metaphor slightly but yeah so over the next 10 to 20 years that close that falls to close to zero amongst the newly retired in the private sector and the men, dc isn't going to take up the slack yeah. well that's that's the second bit so, so just yeah. to say this is primarily men because few women had it to begin with so ironically the gender pension gap closes because male pensions collapse <laughs> part mm. one and then part two is as you say the dc cavalry is nowhere near you know if you've been auto enrolled at 40 you won't be state pensionation or the 27 years or something from then. And that's why I'm seized by the urgency of things like the 2017 review. You know, got a whole group in the dip, you know, post-DB, pre-DC, if you like. Hmm. So if the DC cavalry won't ride to the rescue, to what extent will the people's houses fill the gap? Because I was doing some research and I've been looking at the housing equity anyway. And I was just like trawling through the internet, looking at various things, reading various papers. And I happened to come across a paper written in 2017 by someone working at Royal London, looking at (laughs) um, whether housing equity would fill the gap. And it was a slightly pessimistic conclusion that paper came to that, you know, for some people, maybe and for divorcees and widows, you know, particularly there may be some help, but mostly that housing equity is clustered in the Southeast. So it doesn't look as quite fantastic as you might first imagine. I'd be interested in your reflection on that now a few years later whether yeah i'd probably be slightly less negative now i mean i certainly you hear people say oh my house is my pension you know i'll downsize free up the money and you're more likely to go out of your house in a box than you are to downsize Mm. yeah and even if if you do it turns out you don't release that much anyway yeah absolutely yeah so i don't buy downsizing really as as far as the answer but obviously equity release etc could be You've got the slight problem that the people with lousy pensions tend to be the people with lousy housing as well. Mm. But an exception to that, a a really interesting group of people are the right to buyers, the council house tenants who bought in the 80s under Mrs. Thatcher. Mm. And they have the characteristics on the whole of people who have not very good pensions because they were council tenants in modest jobs on average, but now have a huge amount of housing equity because of housing inflation. So they are a very particular group, I think, who might most benefit from using housing wealth to top up a, a modest pension. But as I say, mostly the people with you know chunky amounts of housing equity are the people with better pensions. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's surprising how little you can borrow on equity release. Like, I haven't really grasped this. I kind of thought if you had a £250,000 house, you could sort of borrow two hundred and fifty. Uh, oddly enough it doesn't doesn't work like that (laughs) you know and i think at at about 65 about a third ish of the house prices you you might be up to 50 percent, but they build in a lot of margin because they carry quite a lot of risk of course they do yeah yeah Yeah. so i think i think he is absolutely part of the story but i think the other part of the story which is sort of housing is inheritance i think we've massively failed to embed the role of inheritance in our thinking about because loosely if people are living to 90, they're bequeathing to people who are 60, mm. not to people who are 30. It'd be lovely if they were bequeathing to people who are 30, but they're not on the whole. You know, so well, and sometimes live, that would be more efficient, right? Much more so, yeah. And, and so the stats are, you know, women live longer than men. So in a couple, generally, a man leaves the wealth to his wife because he, he dies first. And she generally, on average, then gives to their children, a bit to the grandchildren, and they may have had some before they died. But mostly, the peak inheritance ages are sort of late 50s according to the IFS. Now, that, you know, moral number one, don't have any siblings, (laughs) you know, because if you want a big fat inheritance, don't have four brothers or sisters kind of thing, be an only child, you know. But, you know, seriously, if the average house, I don't know, average house price, 250,000, 300,000, 250, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, even half of that, 
125,000 is, you know, that's a heck of a lot. Useful you know. sum, yeah. Yeah, compared with, say, a DC pot, you know, not many people have that much in a DC pot. Well, so inherited and thinking about planning for it and what you might do with it. And sadly, the COVID pandemic has meant lots of people have inherited money early. Most of the people who died were elderly. Most of them will have bequeathed housing wealth. So we just need to think much harder about sensible use of inheritance and so on. But I mean, you touch on a point and there is a planning gap. For all your arguments about using defaults as much as possible to, to bridge this kind of stuff, when I'm looking at my DC pension and I'm looking at my housing wealth and I'm looking at my inheritances and, you know, there's a planning need there. And I think there's kind of not enough of that kind of 360 view of my life and how it's going to play out over the next few decades. There's not enough of that planning going on, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, and I think things like the pension advice allowance, all that sort of stuff are woefully inadequate and providers don't have to offer it anyway. Mm. So, so um, you know, advice vouchers, pilots of free advice and all that sort of stuff. We, we do need a lot more in that space. I suppose my worldview, as you've correctly intimated, is let's get most of the people most of the time to a good enough place. And then advice becomes... That's very liberal know. Democrat. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> it's not a bad aspiration, though, really, in pensions, yeah. I think. And then advice becomes kind of nice to have, helpful, positive, gets you even more optimal, as it were, outcomes. But that if you don't have advice, you're still all right. Yeah. I like that. Let's stop there. It's a nice optimistic <laughs> note to finish on. Steve, thanks so much for talking to me. It's been really enjoyable. As a pleasure. Always good to chat. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.